you are listening to the Transformation Podcast and I'm your host, Kim Deans. Join me for conversations with inspiring farmers who are transforming lives, relationships and landscapes. We explore how we can be the change we wish to see. For our first episode, my guest today is my husband, Angus Deans. Angus was a natural choice for a farmer to interview that fits with the theme of transformation and I'm sure you'll see why when you listen to our discussion. I would describe Angus as a facilitator of awareness. He's passionate about regenerating landscapes and he's also passionate about putting people in touch with themselves through nature. I've shared the journey with Angus of regenerating a lifeless soil which had been mined for tin and overgrazed prior to us purchasing the oasis in 2004. I love Angus's ability to work in tune with nature and to question everything. I'm excited to share this conversation with you here on the podcast and know that you'll be inspired with some simple practical actions that you can implement straight away. So th- thank you, Angus, for joining me. I know we're both a bit out of our comfort zone during a recorded conversation, but I thought we'd kick off the chat if you could tell us a bit about your farming journey. Okay. as uh, Well, my, all of my life has been involved in farming, um, previously in New Zealand, and uh, my family of origin moved to Australia at, when I was at the age of 16 because I had three sons wanted to farm. And, oh, gee, um, it's, it's an interesting conundrum because, or oh, an interesting story. First, felt bent, first fence I ever built was at the age of 10. Uh, couldn't even lift the posts, but I did that with the hydraulic arms on the tractor. Uh, right into grazing management that I actually performed from boarding school. I'd get a weekly letter from mum and dad telling me, how much rain we'd had and what was happening and I'd tell them where to put the livestock on our 27 acres that did run 300 ewes and seven stud cows. How old were you then, Angus? 13 when I started that, like from boarding school. (laughs) Um, So then came to Australia and that was when I was 16 at the time, my education in having to manage a landscape really started we came at the end of a drought in 1981 to southeast queensland um and such a vastly different country environment um there was no simple thing of it being three weeks without rain was a drought um came to a place where you know we'd get rainfall the majority of our 36 inch rainfall would happen in december and january and so nine months to 10 months of many years was drought. Mm. Um, and it's been a heck of an education. Yeah, very, very different to New Zealand. Oh, vastly different. And since then you've worked in farming in different guises, haven't you? Yeah, I've been involved in intensive stone fruit and vegetable production and grapes. Um, I've managed cattle properties and orchards and leased and managed sheep properties um yeah no so all this led to i guess angus's farming experience prior to us meeting and buying our little patch of land um and since we've been here we've been following probably a very different path to conventional agriculture and this has been a lot motivated by both of us but angus has been very much a um a leader in the field in our partnership 
And I'm wondering, Angus, if you could tell people what motivated you to follow this path, a different path. Uh, years ago, when I was involved in the stone fruit and vegetable growing, I suffered with what was called chronic fatigue syndrome because they didn't know what else to call it, but I basically had no energy. Um, and uh, it was due to the chemical exposure and overload that I was subjected to in, in that industry. So I really turned away from chemical avenues as a way of doing things. I also had witnessed very much what the use of chemicals in those industries did to the soils and to the plants and things that we were growing. But I wondered about the effect it was having on consumers. So. When we bought the Oasis here, we decided we were going to be chemical free and we would rejuvenate this landscape via grazing management. And uh, then a couple of years into that, we sort of hit on the biodynamics. and Yeah, and we've been regenerating a very tired, very lifeless soil using those two principles of rotational, good, properly managed grazing and biodynamic practices and it's been quite a journey um, and it's probably been some challenges what challenges would you describe Angus that we've had to overcome in this little journey at, at the oasis challenges there's plenty of those in the granite soils we have here at Tinga uh, when we first bought the place we had a dark layer and I couldn't call it black on top of our sandy soil of about a foot uh, 14 inches deep with that overlays our yellow curacao clay. We had a dark layer of about two mils to three mils thick. Um, so absolutely no organic matter. This country had been sluiced for 10, 100 years ago, so it had all been washed away with high pressure water and chasing the alluvial tin. So we had, we had no pastures. What we, we had was basically native pastures. We had three, four paddocks on the 20 acres. Um, couldn't run six sheep. Mm, on 20 acres. And yeah. I remember we got a soil test not long after coming here and, and the person interpreting it said, I think it was very empty. Well, <laughs> was that their word? Our, our soil was described as being, the minerals being really well balanced in good proportions, but basically being non-existent. Yeah, so we... We had we, we decided we must like a challenge and I have to say this property and the journey has taught us so much. Um, were there any specific observations that motivated you? Do you remember in our journey when we were learning how to manage this very different hard landscape with extremes of temperature and very poor soil? The things that got me was the importance of organic matter, obviously, because we had none. Um, so we were at the whim of the weather constantly. Uh, we made a huge effort to graze and keep long coverage on the grass because I'm firmly of the belief that, or on the pastures, I'm firmly of the belief that the root depth is as long as the top is high. And I was trying to get deep roots both to access soil moisture but to help get biota and the soil alive and, and create organic matter. Uh, we had a workshop here in the early days where people went, oh, you've got to get rid of all this roughage. And I went, no way, because that was protecting our soil, both from the minus 15 degree frosts in winter, 
from the 36, 37 degree days in summer, from the winds that would just whip across the surface and suck all the moisture out of it wasn't for that protection. And the fact that it just ameliorated soil ground temperatures. So challenges were huge. Mm, and the observations that we made, I guess, were in trying to work with nature more um, and then motivated us to change things. So um, we did find some pretty simple solutions to these issues, didn't we? Simple, certainly, and and uh, and the, the underlying precept behind what we've done here is build fences, add water. Um, so when it's dry, build more fences. Slow down the rotation, lengthen the rest period in between grazings. That has entailed us putting in a rough water system with piped water that travels through the middle of the place. How many troughs can you manage to source to put in what can be up to 120 paddocks we graze in at a time? You can't, so we've learned to do portable troughing. Um, yeah, the portable troughs was amazingly simple and it's something that you don't often think about. But when we discovered that, it opened up the possibility to manage our grazing to a whole new level, didn't it? It has done. It's, mm. it's meant that we can graze, you know, down to sixth of an acre paddocks without any drama at all and you've kept to the expense of building lots of fences down by using electric fences and I know a lot of people shy away from electric fences but it's done an amazingly made it amazingly easy to achieve um, good grazing management and regeneration of soil hasn't mm. it yeah the boundary fence and the few original internal fences were ring lock but not a good quality one um, the electric fencing is incredibly cheap. We control our dorpers and our cattle with three wires, two of which are hot and one's earth. There's an earth return for the dry times. Um, top wire's knee high and works fabulously well because the livestock understand that, you know, they're going to be moving every day or two days and um, don't put pressure on it. Yeah, and I love how the sheep tell us when they're ready to move. They love knowing. They love the certainty of knowing the routine. They love to know where they're going. They trust that we will shift them and that they will be provided for. And, and I love seeing the relationship that forms with the sheep and yourself and sometimes me when I fill in <laughs> because they are so happy and they're thriving and they, uh, they know that there's food there. They just um, seem to thrive with that routine of good grazing management and opening a gate and walking through. And it's been, um, I just love it. And I love how easy they are to handle as a result of having that attention every day. Um, one of the things a lot of farmers say to me is that, oh, don't have time for that. But yet we work full time, basically. Um, we come home and it really takes only a couple of minutes, doesn't it, to shift them once you've got the fences in, which and even temporary fences don't take long to put up. So it's not been a huge issue with time for us. Have you got any comments on that? Well, it, it takes time and that's mm. to be expected. But the, what it is, I'm a firm believer in an old Chinese proverb that the best fertiliser is a farmer's footsteps. So every day I'm in the paddock, every day I'm with the stock so I can identify any issues arising before they become really noticeable. Um, 
and the the beauty of it is that you know I know my fingers on the pulse of exactly what's happening all of the time. There is a little bit of time involved in it, but that's far outweighed by the benefits that come from a really short graze and a long rest interval. And I often notice that there's so many farmers who won't move their stock, but they'd happily spend more time and money drenching them with drenches they don't work but, and leave them set in a one paddock where because we move regularly, we break the worm egg life cycle and rarely do we need to drench our livestock. They're much healthier. Um, our pastures are cleaner. It just seems to make sense on so many other levels. And if we do have to get them in, they're easy to work because they're quiet and they know they, know they trust us that everything's under control. So it has other benefits as well. Yeah, yeah. it's very true. Um, I know a lot of people when they decide to do things differently and changing how we farm or even just taking a different track in a farming business or in a la landscape management, often we can know that there's other options, but it's often hard to move from knowing about them to actually doing things differently. And I observe that a lot of people might know better, but they don't always do better because it takes a lot of energy to change our habits and our patterns and our thinking. Um, have there been things, because you're very good at, change you're very good at oh I now know better I'll do better are there any things that have helped you to implement those changes and to be so able to deal with change in your life I think probably one of the, the most important things is the fact that I've changed countries <laughs> from one with a soft climate and rich young soils to one with impoverished soils and an incredibly harsh climate because it meant I had to get my head around a whole new paradigm sort of from a cold turkey position. So there was no way I could grow up with, oh, this is the way it's always been done. Mm, that um, really shifted you, didn't and, it? And that's been fortunate. It's the other thing that I'd say, like I've, I've read many, many people, and these are old people from 100 years ago, you know, that um, wrote stories back in the early 1920s and 30s about how the chemical agriculture as it was starting to happen was not working and was destroying soil health and animal health and human health. And that always gelled with me. So I've always gone, there's got to be another way. Um, and then, you know, when I came here and I observed that, you know, your grass stops growing because it stopped raining because of the heat or the cold, doesn't matter. But that nine to 10 months of every year effectively were drought, it became essential to me just to go, okay, well, let's manage like droughts just around the corner. Let's grow the feed so that I've got a standing haystack that's going to carry me through until the next likelihood of a decent growth period. Mm, yeah, and you can see why having those, I guess, changing countries at that age and being a keen farmer from day one, that really helped you see, like, get you out of that routine where we get stuck in how we've always done things, really disrupted it. Well, mm. I don't know because I, I was a little bit different even there, you know, but, I, like, I, I love or, or, or I guess what inspires me most is going out there and I don't ever believe that I understand it and know it because nature teaches us continually that what we think we know and is going to work is not necessarily how she's got it planned. Mm. And so, you know, I learned constantly. At one stage, I tried a thing where we had the sheep in a paddock for two days and they weren't making enough impact. So I thought, 
Uh, no, for one day, sorry. I thought, I'll try them for two days. Well, on the second day, they came back and ate shorter again, the bit they ate on the first day, and still left the other. And I went, okay, so what I'm doing is weakening my more nutritious and palatable species at the expense of the others. Mm. Can it again, you know? So I just wore the extra rank stuff we had, but ultimately it was a haystack that served us through the mm. following winter. And I, one of the things that's hitting me as you're explaining this is maybe asking you to explain your your way of managing grazing because there's so many ways people can be very prescriptive and have timing and this many days and and uh, everyone's slightly different. I notice Angus works very much by observing nature and what's happening with the grass and the sheep. And is there a way you can explain your the art and science of how you manage the grazing here? There's no science to it. It's an art, but it's based on observation. Um, so that in a period of rapid growth, so we're getting good rainfall and good moisture, um, I believe the, the longest grazing period we can have, so the longest we can have the stock on any one paddock for is 24 hours. Ideally, I would go an even shorter interval than that, but because we work or farm, you know, we don't really have that option. So 24 hours is what I've settled on for the sake of expediency. But some some grazing managers in the States are moving stock on several hourly intervals in the daytime. And I can understand, you know, the benefit in that if you were there to do mm. it as a full-time manager or had the resources to fit your gates with bat latches and things. But the reason for the 24-hour spell being optimal is that I've heard various people over the years say that, you know, the grass doesn't graze again, doesn't grow again for seven days. Some people say 10 days. So you can graze for that period of time without creating harm. But if you observe a lawn, you know, you mow it one day, there's been growth the next. So if we keep the livestock there for more than the 24-hour period, they've mowed the, particularly the palatable stuff the first day and then it's growing the next day and they come back and they take the top off that again. What they're doing is continually weakening the plant, not enabling it to recover um, and have energy then to put into further explosive growth um that changes so that's in a growing period it's, it's certainly 24 hours is, is a top for me in a dry time uh so particularly in winter here where we might have no growth and no green which can happen in our winters at times although that's changed over the years too uh they could spend up to 48 hours in a paddock Mm. So it's really just adjusting all the time. There's no prescriptive approach that you take, but it's based on observing, watching, learning as you go, and just um, finding a system that works for our landscape and our lifestyle as well, isn't it? You know, It is, and trying to keep a length of grass always left mm. behind. Um, there was someone actually told me a saying that I've, I, th I think has a lot of validity, but it wouldn't work for, for many. Um, and, and that is that animals should only go into a pasture when it's high enough that you can't see their knees and should be gone by the time you can see their ankles. Uh, so you're with a view to trying to keep a productive organise, organism in best condition, flourishing mm. after your stock have left. 
that's a great simple way to look at it as well. And simple is always good. Um, and one of the things I've noticed from the way you're grazing our property, the way I've learned to graze with you, is when we do get rain, things respond so quickly because the plants are more they're having that rest period to recover and keep their reserves. And because we have native pastures, they seem to be adapted to these extremes of climate really well as on top of that. And it always amazes us, doesn't it, when we do get a break at how quickly things re regenerate and restore and come back because nature is so resilient. Yeah. Not only resilient in the sense of that growth response, but these last few years where we've had these incredibly hot, dry midsummer periods where all of the moisture has been sucked out of things and the pastures have totally hayed off. When we've picked up rains in March and April, because they are native pastures, they start greening from the midrib out and eventually we can have a totally green pasture back of the standing biomass that if it had been an improved pasture, it would have been dead. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So as you can tell, Angus is a passionate grazing manager and if anyone wants to follow up and chat with him after the podcast, I encourage you to, to contact us via our website. I will leave those details for you because um, he is just been something he's done since he's a child and he loves it. In the journey, Angus, that you've had in farming and changing and adapting to the ways you do things, is there anything you've had to let go of in that process? had to let go of science and dogma. Mm. Um, so science in the sense that when I was a young fellow, I was very scientifically oriented, everything was black and white. I understood the old agronomic model of balancing minerals was going to make all the difference. But I observed that in many, many places and saw no improvements in soil health, productivity, animal health, productivity. And I went, there's got to be more than that, you know. So I was discovering how the whole organism works and being prepared to question everything. I um, sometimes teach workshops on different products and I hate doing it, different, different practices, should I say. I hate doing it because I go, yeah, but, you know, I don't know what I'm doing, it's that old definition of an expert really gets in my craw of X being an unknown quantity and a spurt being drip under pressure. And I see a lot of experts out there and, and nature teaches me every day that I'm just a novice, you know, I'm just here learning and growing through the process. So what I'm hearing and what I know from knowing Angus the way I do is that he's constantly learning and constantly questioning and that has been a huge benefit as far as me able to adapt to things in life that you have no control over when things don't always go according to plan and um but also in in trying to work with landscapes and work with nature it's essential isn't it it is essential you know that we we live in a changing world and it's changing ever more rapidly um and so it's essential to not hang on to, oh, but this is how it should be. This is how it ought to be. This is how I have to make it. Um, mm. We're better to go with the flow and, and oh, how would you say, keep being proactive rather than reactive. Mm. My next question is an interesting one. Because I, I worked with a number of farmers over many years, hundreds of them, 
and I've often struck farmers who have known there's another way to do things. They've even gone and done all the workshops and gone to all the field days and all the seminars, but they come home and they get stuck in and not implementing it. Part of that moving from knowing to doing, but also they, there's this huge fear of what will people think of me when they look over my fence, you know, or when they see my, my stock at the yards. What, how thick opinions of others affected you in your journey? Is, have you got anything to add on that? Oh, flippantly, it would be very easy. I think everyone else is an idiot, but no, <laughs> not, not in the sense of putting people down, but I don't, when, when someone sets themselves up as an expert, when someone professes to know stuff, then they are now closed to the endless possibilities out there, you know? So, um, and I don't, I've, I've never met anyone who knows everything. So, I've looked at other people's opinions of what we do and that's okay, they're entitled to it, but it's not going to influence what I'm doing because I'm more interested in looking at my landscape, looking at my animals, looking at us as a family and how we operate in it and keeping on working with that. I have a vision that our place and any lands we influence will be ever-evolving, becoming more complex, more productive and more resilient and so you can't be too concerned with what other people think. You know, mm. I've, I've had the produce guys, you know, go, oh, you know, more steel posts, whatever, you know, and it's like, yep, but I'm not there buying feed. Yeah. More steel posts, more wire. I love how um, Angus inspires me constantly to live a life that feels good on the inside and it doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside because we can get so hung up and appearing like we've got all our stuff together, like our, our landscape management's perfect, when it's always a work in progress and you're always learning and evaluating and moving with the climate and what happens and changing your goals and visions can change as well. So you need to keep shifting, don't you? But it's, yeah, I think that having that capacity to be very self-contained and, and know your own self-wells helped you and that, that inspires me and, and Angus will pull me up if I'm not living what we're preaching too, which really helps me to be accountable. Um, so, yeah, that's it's very powerful, but I know that whole fear of what people think often stops people changing um, and it's a shame because <laughs> it, it's their life, not anyone else's. Angus, is there anything... Any people or resources that inspire you that you could share with our listeners? Resources would be books. Um, like I mentioned earlier, you know, books of what were old-time people, sort of the 1920s and 30s, uh, Sir Albert Howard, um, Friend Sykes, uh, Louis Blomfield, people who came along and were given or took on stewardship of these very degraded lands and went, well, hang on a minute, you know, they've become so degraded as a result of what's gone on before, let's find a different way. So they did. They've, all of those people, they, some of them might have used chemicals, for instance, in the form of fertilisers and things as a way to, to first get a little bit of production happening, but they were all with a view to taking them down the biological way of producing that was working in tune with nature. So those sort of people were inspiring. Um, Masanuba 
Thank you, Maka. One straw revelation was inspiring. Um, there are people who just understand systems and stress. There was a guy, Michael Rhodes, wrote a book called Journey into Nature and Talking with Nature. They really hit me in an informative way. Um, but he teaches now uh, a really simple message, consciously choose love. When we do that in respect of our landscapes, we stop being at war with our landscapes and our environment, you know. And, and as the only thing, as Kim was talking before about, say, changes and paradigms, you know, I was heavily into this thing of, oh, geez, you know, got to get rid of these weeds. And I was fortunate enough to be working on a property where the guy who bought it was into getting rid of the weeds the same. And I watched the weeds coming up in the same place year after year after year. And then I realized, hang on a minute, they're here to heal something that's out of balance. And when I let go of my resistance to the weeds and allowed them to do the healing that they were there to do, my landscape changed and my productivity went up. My stress levels went down. My bank account looked more positive than it ever had. The work I saved in having to chip things out or grub them was massive. Because mm, weeds are a huge expense and time constraint and just most there's not too many farmers I deal with that aren't totally um sidetracked by weeds constantly and in fear of weeds when they're making decisions what will if that make more weeds or not and it is sidetracked that's mm. a really valid point to put out Kim because what we should do is go years ago I was involved in the mining industry and I did participate in a course that was looking at OH&S management mines and it was called root place Root cause analysis. Um, root cause analysis. Yeah. That's what it was, a workplace incident. If we look at weeds in the landscape, if we've got a pasture full of weeds, what is the root cause of that? It can only come back to poor grazing management. We've overgrazed. We've created compaction. We've gotten rid of all the more desirable species that could have if the ground had been kept covered and healthy and alive would have, in actual fact, meant that there was no space for those weeds to be there. They're the pioneering plants that are trying to fix a mess. When we focus just on killing them, we're not focusing on the mess that they're there to fix. That's so true. And I've been observing landscapes as I drive around and in, in the area where we live. And when we come through a bad drought and I see the people overgrazing down to bare dirt, when it rains, their paddocks are full of thistles. Mm -hmm. And thistles are there, they're prickly, they're saying, keep off, I need to heal, I need to recover, I need to rest. Get the calcium processes mm. happening again, which are the decay processes. They're about rebuilding life. And if you've already, I suppose if you've inherited a block or you've got to a space where you're having weed issues, it's then to just gently, and obviously you've still got to make money, you've still got to manage your landscape, but gently find ways to, to restore ground cover and restore life to the system and, and, and try and work that way with yeah. them. Yeah, it's a real balancing act, isn't it? Um, so that, yeah, you've really given us a rundown on a lot of the philosophies that, that we work with here. Um, are there positive outcomes, Angus, to the way that, changing the way we farm to working more in tune with nature has brought to your life? Well, it depends on, on what you mean. And there's many aspects of to my life. So 
if you look at it, even in terms only of the production aspect, yeah, really positive things. You know, we now have a carrying capacity that's about three times what our neighbours is, for instance. And we've never added a fertiliser to the place. So we have increasing levels of organic matter, which stores more water each time there's a rainfall event, which grows us more grass to create more organic matter and to create higher production levels. We're sort of on this snowballing effect, really. And if you take that further in your life, well, to have the joy of living on a chemical-free environment, eating biodynamically grown food, the energy and the, the right thinking that promotes and helps assist, and the fact that you're not stuck fighting, you know, the weather, the weeds, like the, the, there's so much less stress involved in it. It's a joy and it is actually, it's, it's a real joy to be able to get out and walk to paddocks and feel what's happening because you even feel it physically underfoot. You know, the ground is softer. and um, Yeah, that's so true. Um, I know at the moment where we live, we're really um, having to make some pretty tough decisions about going into winter. It's, um, mid no late February as we speak and we had some extremely hot dry weather these last couple of months after a beautiful spring um, so grazing decisions going into winter in our area we don't get a lot of winter um, growth in our pastures because of the frosts so we have to think about making tough decisions and that's probably one of the challenges I know we face every year is is how do we adjust your stocking numbers and um, when the year our drought strategy was to buy a bigger freezer and <laughs> fill it with meat so we still get the benefit but yeah we do have to you know have the challenge at the moment and there's a lot of our listeners will probably um understand and be going through similar as to working out how we manage this landscape and balance the the attachment to livestock and what we hope for them to do with um the actual carrying capacity that's inherent in our land and due to lack of rainfall so and heat so it is a balancing act have you got anything you want to add on that i really do i see a lot of people get trapped in the fact that particularly at a time of year if they're in an area like ours where you don't get a lot of winter growth or or anything like that go oh yeah but my my young stock for instance aren't finished i can't get rid of them yet i don't ever farm with the intent of just having you know the fat stock I farm with the intent of looking after the soil so that the soil will look after what's growing on it and that will look after the stock. So we are at present looking at getting rid of lambs that are not finished, mm -hmm. but we are better to get rid of lambs that are finished and keep the, like halve our numbers and, and so only run the ewes, which are the productive capacity for next year, lighten the load on the place, and bounce back all the quicker when the season changes. That's right. And it's still hard. And, it, you know, you, you get attached to animals and what you want to do, but Mother Nature has the call and being able to adjust to that. Oh, it can be embarrassing it. taking in light <laughs> lambs. But yeah. the, the point is not to be concerned about that. If we hang on to the lambs and try to do something with it, well, we only degrade our productive capability that's in the right. future and that is not worth it and that's what i so enjoy about farming with angus is the ability to see the big picture and see beyond 
the short term and the immediacy of it. And that's, I think, a key in good fund management all round. But it is so important to get that holistic perspective and not be just looking for the short term fix all the time. But what is the what is that decision going to do to my place next year and the year after yeah. as well? So it, we're nearly to the end of our chat, but I was hoping Angus um, might be able to just leave us with a simple action that could help people get started, probably with grazing management. Well, the, the simplest thing is don't make excuses. Um, you know, you start with what you've got. Years ago when I was managing an orchard and cattle spread over three places for a guy, where we ran the heifers after we joined them to carve them out before we bushed them in the big breeding place, uh, we had three paddocks. That was all I had to run these heifers. And, and there was a bit of variation in size, so they grazed one week, one week, and two weeks. That was all I could do with the infrastructure I had, but the productivity lifted 50% versus what had happened before when the place had been set stop. Just leaving all the gates open. Yeah, mm. um, or stock in each of the paddocks. Mm. The, the best thing you can do is have as few mobs as possible Gray's aiming to get impact and spell. Um, and you do that with the infrastructure you've got. Yeah. And then you start fencing. Start with what you have, where you are. And yeah. when we came to the Oasis, we had three paddocks and Angus just started moving between those and gradually, um, lucky he likes fencing. But even if you don't, it doesn't take long to do a quick electric fence and, mm. and um, train stock to behave with it as well. Um, Thank you so much, Angus, um, for being my first podcast guest and sharing with us. And I'm sure that there'll be times I may get him back in here to talk more because, um, yeah, wealth of information and good ability to question what we do and how we do things. So thank you very much and thank you for listening. If you'd like to find out more about us, would like to get in touch with us, our website is bydynamiclife.com. Please come and say hi. Thank you.